Hello and welcome to the Raw podcast brought to you by the Sunderland Echo. I'm your host for today, Joe Nicholson, and I'm joined by my fellow Sunderland writer, James Cockley. James, you've uh, had a day to reflect on Sunderland's 2-1 defeat against Ipswich at the Stadium of Light. Obviously not the result that Tony Mowbray's side wanted. So how are you feeling now after the game yesterday at the uh, at the Stadium of Light? Um, mixed emotions. I think it, it highlighted... Um... A little bit of a lack of experience in Sunderland squad, which is an issue which everybody's talked about for a long time. Raised some transfer questions as well. Um, I'm sure we'll get into the game in more detail. But for me, Joe, it highlighted the lack of an Ahmad, somebody who can really unlock the door for Sunderland. Obviously, I had Patrick Roberts and Clark on the pitch. Um, and I thought Roberts did well in, in periods of the game but he seemed to have two or three on him and he didn't have somebody next to him who he could bounce the ball off like he did at times last season with a mad. I thought Clark was his, his usual willing self, um, but struggled to, to deliver that real moment of quality. So it was just a, a frustrating day in attack for Sunderland, I thought. Mm. I'll just quickly through, run you through what happened. I'm sure you were all aware of what happened through the game, but Sunderland saw a lot of the ball, dominated possession really for that most of that first half. Fell behind though right on the stroke of half time when Nathan Broadhead kind of turned a shot past Anthony Patterson. At first, it looked like it hit him with him not really knowing much about it. But then on second viewing, um, he did quite well to kind of adjust his feet and turn the ball in. Ipswich then went 2-0 up shortly after half time when George Hurst was put through by Broadhead and, and he made it 2-0. Sunderland then reduced to 10 men when Tri Hume was sent off for a second yellow card, but seemed to respond quite well after that with Dan Neal pulling one back with about four minutes to go. Then there were 13 minutes of added time and Neil had a shot tipped onto the post by the Ipswich goalkeeper. So Sunderland could have quite easily come away with a point. But obviously, looking at the game, James, um, what was said yesterday from Tony Mowbray and from Dan Neil, Mowbray was saying for the first kind of 20, 15 minutes, it was kind of one-way traffic in Sunderland's favour. Dan Neil came out and said, he felt they dominated for large parts of the game, which I tend to agree with both of them. But as you mentioned before, there just seemed to be that lack of cutting edge. And I think what Ipswich kind of had with Hurst, with Chaplin and with Broadhead, they had mm. that kind of sharpness up front where it just felt Sunderland lacked that really without, as you said, Ahmad. If you yeah. put Rob Stewart in that side, I just felt that was kind of the difference between the two teams, even though Sunderland played some good stuff and mm -hmm. saw more of the ball. No, I would agree. First 20 minutes, I thought Sunderland were really good. Uh, kept the ball really well. Equa pulling the strings magnificently in the midfield. Dan Neal looked good. Um, the only thing I would say that when Sunderland did dominate, I thought Hamia looked very isolated up front. We saw in pre-season. I actually turned to you during the game, didn't I, and said that uh, it's a strange performance this by Hamia because he hasn't really dropped deep. He didn't touch the ball very often, really. Certainly didn't look a goal threat. Um so perhaps he's been given instructions to maybe occupy the two centre-halves. Uh, Mowbray mentioned um, his work rate in his running is something he's still adapting to. Um, but yeah, I agree with that assessment that Sunderland did dominate for, for large periods, especially the opening 20 minutes. I thought Ipswich throughout the game as a whole, though, had their moments. I thought mm -hmm. for a newly promoted side, they were very, very, very good. Nathan Broadhead is an exceptional player and pulled the pulled the strings, got into spaces. You know, he plays that nine and a half role really, really well. Um, I, I like Joe Geldhard, but it would have been interesting to see if, if Nathan Broadhead had come back to Sunderland last season because 
he seems to really play that role quite well. Granted, he was playing off a striker. Um, and there's nothing like a goal and an assist to, to sort or make you make you wonder if, if Sunderland missed the boat with, with Nathan Broadhead. I actually thought that the crucial moment in the game uh, as a whole was Joe Bellingham's miss. Um, yeah. Equa gets the ball in the middle. It's a good shot. Um, tests the goalkeeper, which is something Sunderland didn't do enough. The goalkeeper can't hold it. The ball comes out to Equa. The goal's gaping. The, the goalkeeper's not getting there if he hits it on target um, and he blazes it over the bar. I think you should do better from that position, but when you watch it back, it is a tough, tough sort of half volley to control that side-footed, very, very tough chance. I think anybody who's watched football or who's like played football at a basic level would would understand that the way that ball's travelling, the angle of it, it is a tough chance, albeit professional footballer probably should do better. And somebody said to me on Twitter, I hope that's not the moment that sort of we look back on in this game and I think it was uh, a bit of a moment missed and that the first goal's a killer right before half time. The second goal's a killer because it's just after half time. It's that textbook thing, isn't it, Joe, with a 90 minute football match. You don't want to concede sort of either, either side of half time. Mm. Uh, left Sunderland with a bit of a mountain to climb. I thought in the second half, half Ipswich managed it well with Sunderland chasing the game. Um, they had several chances with uh, Sunderland stretched, uh, they could have scored another couple. Yes, Sunderland did hit the post, um, but I thought Ipswich were, were probably worth their win in the end. Um, and I, I was slightly disappointed with Sunderland in a sense that they only really started to get going in the second half when that's 13 minutes of added time. There, there was a noticeable lift. The, the crowd... The red card, the, the human uh, card, I thought, the, from there. The, the red card, that did rally a little bit after that. But mm. for me, the urgency when that 13 minutes was shown, um, there, there was a sort of an audible lift within within the stadium and a, and a boost within the team as well. I just would have liked to have seen that come a, li- a little bit earlier. I think we sort of went through the motions and perhaps felt a little sorry for ourselves at times. I don't think it's it's the worst sort of opening performance we've ever seen. And I don't think there's any cause for massive concern just yet. Um, and I actually think Ipswich are, are a really good side, managed by a really, really good coach in Kieran McKenna, who've got some good players. And I think actually come the end of the season, we might look at this result and think like, I Ipswich are a, a decent team. Yeah, we kind of saw that last season with Coventry, didn't we? Sunderland played Coventry mm. on the opening day of the season. It was a one-one draw, and actually, look what Coventry went on and, and achieved, yeah. getting to the to the playoff final. But I agree with you. I think the start of the second half, I think Sunderland were just—it was a real sucker punch, wasn't it? Conceding right yeah. on the stroke of half time, when Sunderland had, as we said, I think played the better stuff. Perhaps which Ipswich had created some of the better chances. There was the one where O'Nine had to block one off the line, but as you say, that Bellingham. I forgot about was, that. Yeah was a big one um but i just thought in the second half it was just Sunderland looked a bit kind of flustered and ipswich got their second goal and then there was another moment where chapman hit the crossbar and then ipswich yeah. probably should have had a penalty when ballard collided with hurst but there was another moment actually in the first half when the game was still nil nil when jack clark was clipped now i've seen this back this morning he was mm. clipped by Danassian, and i think Sunderland had a strong claim for a penalty there yeah i do as well i actually spoke to um I went to university in Swansea with an Ipswich Town support and friend who I actually met before the match, Matthew. Uh, 
and I was talking to him after the game and, and he wasn't impressed with the referee either. He said it, he'd watched it back and he thought it was a penalty on Clark, but that Ipswich should have had a penalty as well. Um, so it was an interesting day for the officials. Mowbray obviously wasn't wasn't too happy after the game either. So yeah, sometimes you get them and sometimes you don't. It's interesting actually with like looking at the, the stats for the game. Sutherland dominated possession. They had more shots, more shots on target. Um and you can look at that and you can say, yeah, Sunderland probably should have won that game. But as you mentioned, Joe, in terms of the clear-cut chances, I think Ipswich could have had two at the end, really, on the break. Um, they clipped the crossbar as well from that long yeah. shot. They had the 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 moment with Luke 9 which was an exceptional piece of defending. I thought he, he could have put it in his own net. <laughs> yeah, an exceptional piece of defending. So in terms of moments on goal, I think Ipswich probably, probably um, edged that, to be honest. And it just goes to show that, that the numbers don't always tell the full story and just on or nine actually obviously Danny Bart was left out of the start the level with, with Mowbray preferring or nine alongside Ballard and I thought or nine perhaps became a, a victim of, of criticism because Bath was left out and Sunderland had lost and Sunderland conceded two goals but actually I thought or nine by and large was was pretty good you could argue whether well you could you could probably rightly argue that Danny Bath's Better defensively, he's got more stature, but I think he's been sort of a victim of Bath being left out and Sunderland losing. Where perhaps all nine didn't really do too much wrong, and mm. the the goal, um, the goal that he saved was an exceptional piece of defending. He captained the side. Would I have started Bath? Probably yes, um, but I, I don't actually think all nine did did too much wrong. I, I don't know well, how you saw that, Joe. When a player is left out and the team have lost, it's always kind of easy to. Yeah, that's what I mean. If yeah. so-and-so had played, it may have been different. I think if you look at the two goals, the first one, it's a good run from Broadhead. I think O'Nine was the closest player to him. Um, but I'm not sure there was much kind of O'Nine could have done it's, to get in front. It's an, it's an excellent finish by Nathan Broadhead. The, the the ball's coming at him so fast and he's just dinked it into the into the net. As you mentioned earlier, we both thought it was a deflection. Mm. Um, and it's an exceptional finish by an exceptional player who, if he stays fit, honestly... I think sky, sky's the limit, to be honest, for 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 Nathan Broadhead in terms of the championship and maybe even getting back to the back to a Premier League club one day if he can just keep those hamstrings in in order. He, he's a really really good player. Mm-hmm. When you mentioned there with with Danny Barr, he was on the bench, and Mowbray said afterwards that it's kind of business as usual. Obviously, we know there's been that transfer interest from Blackburn. There were some reports saying that Bart wasn't going to be in the squad, but he was on the bench yesterday, and then Mowbray confirmed that he's set to play against Crew in the Carabao Cup. Now, centre-back is a position where Sunderland do have a lot of options with Ballard, with O'Nine, with Danny Bart. Triantis has come in. Jensen Seals as well is going to come back from injury. But do you think at the minute that is the strongest partnership with O'Nine and Ballard at the back for next week's game against Preston? Personally, no. I know I've just defended... Or nine there, but I, I just think Danny Bart's experience and his leadership is is vital to Sunderland. If you look at some of the best periods Sunderland had last season, it was Bath and Ballard, and then when Ballard was out, it was Bath and nine. Mm. Um, for for the most part, I think his inexperience, his guidance. Not that I'm I'm saying that you know all nine and, and Ballard are some sort of headless chickens in defence because they're not. But I just think sometimes you need that older statesman. He would have been in my team against Ipswich. To be honest, obviously that there seems to be something going on behind the scenes in, in terms of in terms of the transfer. Um tactically as well, Mowbray's mentioned sort of playing out from the back. But yeah, I think 
Bath can can do that at times. He's he's not one that's just going to grab the ball and, and hoof it up every time. Um, but he has good defensive instincts, and you know sometimes a defender's first instinct needs to be to defend and and get the ball away. And personally, I I think they're too. I think that partnership's really strong. Bath Bath and Ballard. Um, I actually remember thinking at one point last season that there wasn't really a, a better defensive, central defensive partnership in in the championship other than maybe the top two or three, because Bath and Ballard were, were so strong. Yes, he's you know a year older now and 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 whatnot, but with that experience with with Wolves helping them to promotion that time ago, you know, his wealth of experience with Stoke City, he he'd be in my team. He was Sutton's player of the season last last year. Um, and in regards to that transfer question, I do think sometimes you have to be careful what you wish for. It's very easy to look at a player's age and go, you know, 32, 33, coming up to 34, doesn't fit in with a model. Um, we're not going to be able to recoup any sort of fee for him. So it's worth blooding a younger player, which I can understand that argument to an extent. And it is good to have young players around the club. And it is good to think in terms of succession and who's going to be the next cab off the rank. But at the end of the day, you do need players that can contribute now and uh, and who have the experience to, to bring those young players through. And I think Danny Bath did that exceptionally last year with Ballard. And, and I know he's not a young player, but with 0-9 being inexperienced as a championship centre-back, as he was last season, I think Bath Bath was invaluable to, to, to helping them both progress. And I, and I think he could perform a similar role this season. And, you know, it, it, he's a fine defender in the championship as well. And, and I, I don't think... We should underestimate that. Um, and you could probably argue the same as well with Alex Pritchard and, and a few of the other squads as well. Mm-hmm. It kind of links to the next point I was going to come on to, which was um, Sunderland's home form. And you meant you kind of mm-hmm. touched on it there with the, the the way that Mowbray wants his side to play. The defenders are going to be quite high up the pitch. It's going to be a high line. Perhaps that's the reason why he went with O'Neill and Ballard yesterday, two younger players that maybe a bit more mobile. But we've seen this kind of trend carrying over from last season. Sunderland at home are not as good as they are away from home. I've just got the tables up here. Last season, Sunderland 16th in the division, their home mm. form, seven wins, nine draws, seven losses away from home. They had 11 wins, six draws and six losses. And we saw it at times yesterday in the Ipswich game where Sunderland will see a lot of the ball. They will send more men forward, but then they are vulnerable on the counter-attack. That's... We saw that especially towards the end when some of them were kind of chasing the game. And it's just a theme that seems to kind of have been cropping up last season and then this season. Um, I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Do some of them need to try and maybe change their style at home? It's very difficult because naturally a team, even Ipswich, who were quite an attacking team, scored 101 goals in League One last season. Mm. They're going to be organised and put men behind the ball and then pose that threat on the break. And sometimes some of them are quite vulnerable from that. It's very interesting. I do think it is it is a a formational and a sort of stylistic thing. Uh, as you mentioned, you know, clubs are going to come to the Stadium of Light and perhaps be prepared to soak up the pressure for 20 minutes because the onus is on Sunderland to play. And that, that's the sort of football that, that Sunderland do tend to play. They want to be on the front foot. Um, I, I really don't think it's a question of... Uh, I think that... that it is a question of, of pressure, but that's two-pronged. I don't mean that in a sense that Sunderland fans put loads of pressure on the team because I don't think that exists. I think any any footballing crowd in the world can be demanding at times, and rightly so, because you pay your money. I don't particularly see Sunderland fans as any more demanding as any other club in the land. I actually think, on the whole, Sunderland fans are, are really supportive and understanding 
as a fairly young team at the moment and were throughout last season and will continue to 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 be um to be and do so this season but i think the pressure does come from maybe just the, the magnitude of the stage the the amount of eyes on you the, the 42000 people or whatever the attendance was the fact that it's such a large club the fact that they're so young and inexperienced in places that perhaps that does weigh on on some people's minds and perhaps they do feel that the, the pressure is off a little bit more away from home um, and they can be the, the the sort of underdogs that that upset the apple cart a little bit away from home, and and they can absorb the the pressure because the onus isn't necessarily on them. Um, so I think that there is an element of pressure, but not from Sudden fans. I don't think there's a, an element of pressure from them. And I, and I think you know, Sudden fans when they get behind the team, which more often than not they do, you can propel the team to 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 heights that that maybe weren't achievable before. Look at the Luton Town game at home in the playoff last season. I thought the Sunderland fans were brilliant there and, and sort of helped the team find another gear. So I don't I, I do think it's psychological, but I don't think that's I don't think Sunderland fans are hindering hindering Sunderland. But then there is the the sort of stylistic and the and the formation question as well. And it's a shame because I think the the stadium of like could and should be a, a real fortress and a real asset uh playing in front of that in front of that crowd. And it's it's up to the team and Tony Mulbert to sort of harness that and deal with that and and get used to it. Um, and you know, Sunderland's stated aim is is to knock on the door for promotion this season and next season. And if if they're going to do that, then as you mentioned, those stats, Joe, they're going to have to be sorted out and, and pretty quickly, I'd imagine. Mm. Yeah, it's definitely something they want to improve that the home form. But as we mentioned before, I think kind of the difference between the two teams was what was there in, in the final third with Ipswich, what they mm. had up front. They looked very sharp. Sunderland, in contrast. Hemir was up front. It's his first competitive game in the championship. Joe Bellingham played as a number 10. And although he played there for Birmingham last season, doesn't have many kind of goals and assists. So I think when you just kind of took, obviously, Ahmad out of the team and, and Stewart's, I know he didn't play as much last season because of the injuries. But when you if you brought them back into the side, it could have been a completely different picture. But what did you kind of make of the most attacking players in, in Bellingham and Hemir, both making their debuts? I thought Bellingham looked quite bright for most of the first half. I thought he pressed well. I thought he had some good touches. As we said before, he missed that kind of golden chance, which could have made it 1-0. And perhaps maybe he doesn't offer as much of a goal threat as perhaps when Bradley Dak gets fit, for example. Mm -hmm. He's a player, when he was fit and firing at Blackburn, would chip in with 15 goals a season. And perhaps that's what Sunderland are lacking. Yeah, I, I really liked the performance from Joe Bellingham, to be honest, especially when Sunderland were on the front foot. I thought in possession, he was excellent. He's clearly quite intelligent. There was a lovely little step over in the first half where the ball was played towards him uh, and he let it run for Clark and it presented a, a fairly decent opportunity. I thought that was exceptional awareness, um, you know, very smart of a, of a 17-year-old. I thought on the ball, he, he looked good. He, he showed a good good few flicks. Um, he, he tried to penetrate, which is always good for a, for a number 10 or an attacking player to, to want to try and play that pass. Himea, Again, as we mentioned earlier, it was interesting that he didn't really try and drop deep much and, and link the play. He didn't get too much in the way of service, but on the flip side of that, he didn't really work too hard to make himself anything either. I just think of Ross Stewart, and yes, it's, it, it is tough to to compare him here to Ross Stewart because Ross Stewart's a different question altogether at the moment, a different profile of player, different gravy really. Um, but Ross Stewart really runs the channels, helps create 
his work rate's exceptional. He might touch the ball 10 times, but seven, eight times are meaningful touches and he makes the very most of, of what he's got and drags opponents left, right and centre. I didn't really see much of that sort of old school classic centre forward work from, from him here. Um, although he did, he did, you know, stretch the pitch and, and pin the two centre-halves back. I think he really needs to learn how to, to use his physicality and his size. But at the end of the day, he's a 17-year-old kid coming over from, from Portugal in a new league, in a new team, in a new country, with a new language. It's going to be extremely tough for him. I've no doubt he'll come good eventually. Um, I, I like what we saw of him in pre-season. It's still very early days. You must note that as well, with all the challenges I've just mentioned that he's facing. But for me... I think it just highlights the need for added depth in the striker position, added depth in terms of experience, added depth in terms of quality, added depth in terms of the different types of strikers that are out there and the different options that could provide for, for Tony Mowbray's side. Because Joe, I mean, in the, in the second half, you know, Mowbray took him here off. Mm. Um, his reasoning for that was he, you know, he hasn't played too much football and we want, we want to sort of, we don't want to injure him early on because he's just a, such a young kid. But you know, when Hemir went off, there, there was no striker on the on the bench to, to to come on and affect the game and, and provide another option. The, the club have been unlucky to a degree because Mayenda has has been injured and he was brought to the club, but he's only another. I think he's and seventeen, 18, 18. yeah, seventeen or eighteen himself. So suddenly need options, uh, and, it, and it's been the same in the striking department, with a caveat of a little bit of bad luck here and there, but. I think fans will drastically lose patience soon if if that striking question isn't isn't yeah. really sorted. But you know, uh, uh, what well, there were there were positives there from from Bellingham, and I think Hamir will come good with with time. It's you know, in an ideal world, Hamir probably wouldn't have been starting against against Ipswich Town. Hamir would have made his debut against Crew, um, but fate has had it that, that that's not happened, and, and Sutherland haven't got that experienced striker through the door yet. Um, but it's, you have to caveat that that with it's an extremely competitive market, isn't it? The the striking one. Well, this is, um, yeah, it's a dilemma they've got now, isn't it? And you would think that there will be at least one Premier League loan probably coming in before the end of the month. You would, you would hope so. When kind of those players become available, when Premier League clubs have had that first few weeks to kind of assess their squad and think, okay, this player can now go out on loan, and Sunderland, you would think, is a good place for a young player or even a slightly more experienced player to come out on loan and get regular game time. But it's definitely that striker position is the one where yeah. they lack depth. I mean, we expect Mowbray to probably make 10, 11 changes for the crew game on Tuesday. And if yeah. Hamed drops out, as we've seen in pre-season, someone like Jewison Bennett's going to have to lead the line and that's not ideal for him to be your... No, it's not. And, and I, I don't want to bed wet or anything like that, but in terms of the transfer window, time is actually rapidly running out. It's the 7th of August now. We we praise Sunderland, rightly so, for, for getting some good business done early. Um, obviously, they've concluded the signing of Dak since then and, and Mayanda, but it's the, the, the deadline isn't that far away. It will be on us before we know it. Um, and do you want to go into deadline day with, with this issue still still a thing? Absolutely not. Um, but whether it gets sorted or not is, a, is an entirely different matter. Mm -hmm. that's probably the main position I think a lot of people would say Sunderland needs strengthen is up front I think another area probably central midfield I think with Jay Matese's injury I'm just kind of writing down potential predicted lineup for the crew game and 
potentially if you take you know if you take out Neil and Equar out of midfield, maybe Rig comes in there. But then kind of who else is there to play? Obviously with Evans out injured and with Matete out injured, Embleton out injured as well. There's not really a natural kind of central midfielder that could drop in there. So if Mowbray's going to make eleven changes as we saw him do for the Hartlepool friendly last week, he played Niall Huggins in a central midfield role. You kind of moving players out of position and that wasn't really ideal and we saw what happened in that Hartlepool game so then lost 5-2 yeah. and it was only a friendly but it'll be interesting to see kind of how he approaches the crew game and how many players he kind of puts out of position and could again maybe highlight a lack of strength and depth in certain areas yeah definitely and I thought against Ipswich obviously you know Dan Neil got the goal and hit the post um, he did get caught on the blind side once or twice but I thought it was another positive performance from Dan Neil who was a player that I, I like um, it was interesting that him and Equa sort of dovetailed a little bit. Equa was mm. was was brilliant on the ball, but and that suits both of them. Yeah, one one would go forward while the other the other sat. Whereas you know last season when Daniel was sort of pigeonholed into that six role because Corey Evans was injured, he, he couldn't get forward too much. But I thought I sort of thought with those two there was a more of a, an understanding where one one stays, the other one will go, and, and vice versa. And Equa so good on the ball. I, I'm, I'm such a fan of his, and I think he's gonna he's gonna turn into a great player but you're completely right behind those two obviously you've got Corey Evans who's injured he's a, a more of a natural number six someone probably could have done with somebody like that yesterday um Jamie Tete is injured you know he was having a, a good pre-season we're still even not really sure what what his specific role in the midfield is but you know he's another body that's out could Joe Bellingham drop further back probably but yeah but then obviously but, started the game yeah, even, well, th this is it exactly. He started the game against Ipswich, so he's not he's surely not going to start against Crew. You know, um, Alex Pritchard could he could he drop a little bit a little bit further back? It's, it's not really his game, I don't think. Could he do it against Crew for a game? Probably. Um, and then, and then you know, as you rightly say, against Hartlepool, you were looking at Huggins in the middle at one point. Gooch went in the middle at one point. Um, Ellis Taylor's a, another player who could possibly start in centre midfield, but it's not really his natural position. Um, so yeah, I think definitely a, a centre midfielder. Um, and, and it's interesting actually, just looking at the the squad list list now, is that sort of the the sort of heir apparent to Ahmad we were told was Lahaji. Obviously, he's left, but he looked more of a, a winger to me in pre season anyway. Nevertheless, he's gone. But then it was also sort of mooted that Abdullah Bar was the number ten. He started playing off the left in pre-season, and he came on and, and, yeah. and, and occupied the, the left wing role there again. So that midfield spot, but also that number ten spot as well. Um, Sunderland do have some some good players for that position, but I'm not really sure who the who the new Ahmad is, or whether we're going to even get a new Ahmad type player. So there are still some questions. We have added depth to to certain positions and and rightly so and I think that that will benefit Sunderland long term but in terms of quality you could argue that maybe Sunderland are, are slightly slightly weaker than they were last year the caveat caveat to that is is that players will take time to develop as the season goes on you look at last season the likes of Trey Hume you know emerged as this brilliant player um the same with someone like Aji Alisi, even Equa towards the, the back end of last season, you sort of reach a point in the season and you start thinking, actually, these are first-team options and everything starts to look quite exciting. So we're still sort of in the early days of evaluating this squad. But 
I do think it is short on quality at the moment, to be brutally honest. And and I think I think it's short on quality in the context of of what Sunderland are setting out to do this season. The the stated aim, as I mentioned earlier, is to build on the sixth position and get knocked out in the playoff semi final. Um and go one better and get promoted. If yeah. if it if it was last season and and we were just sort of happy to be back in the championship and and sort of not low expectations because we all wanted the team to do well and we all thought the team could could do well, but there wasn't that pressure. Um but Sunderland performed well last season. It was an enjoyable season. But now expectations have increased and, and in that context I think that the, the squad does lack a little bit of quality. Mm. I mean clearly the squad has got a lot of kind of young energetic technical players in it that's the way the club have recruited but i just yeah. think there's in certain positions there is lack of options there you mentioned it's, like it's the number spe- 10, special, got, speciality isn't it specialist yeah. positions i mean in the number 10 position now you've got bellingham played there yesterday you could bring dak in there you could bring pritchard in there three good options for that position but then as we yeah. said before in central midfield neil and equa are a good first choice pairing but behind that yeah, with the players out injured there is a lack of depth and the same with the with the forwards options as well. Lahadji's now been sold over the weekend. It sounded like someone got quite a good deal there from what Christian Speakman was saying on the club website, but he was another player that was kind of being tipped to kind of step up this season with Ahmad leaving, perhaps like someone like Hume did last season, obviously different position, but he'd been there a little bit of time and then stepped up last season. That's probably what Sunderland thought would happen with Lahadji this season, but now he's been sold. So Sunderland probably need to replace him because mm-hmm. although, again, Clark and Roberts are good first-choice options for those wide positions, they may not be available for, for every game. So Sunderland maybe need to now bring in another option. But what are your kind of thoughts on Lahadji being sold and Sunderland probably need to now bring in another winger as well as the positions we've already mentioned? Yeah, I, I think it underlines that actually, although Christian Speakman and Stuart Harvey's hit rate with, with silence has been... Has been relatively good. I don't think anybody could argue that. You know, the like the likes of Clark Roberts coming to the club, Equa looks a shrewd sign. And they brought Danny Bath to the club. They brought Cirque and Hume to the club. Um, Agiolisi, uh, you know, Corey Evans came to the club un- under them. They managed to get the Ahmad loan done. Um, but you know, every now and again, you're going to get a player that that doesn't work, whose face doesn't fit. Um, and you know that they've got wrong, and I think Isaac Lahaji was probably one of them. I think he could have perhaps developed into a player, but you know you have to question his sort of his hunger and his 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 sort of aspirations that he's he's gone over to Qatar, probably offered a good financial package, which which is hard to turn down. But yeah, in terms of him being the next Ahmad and the next the you know, the next number ten, it hasn't turned out that way. Um, and actually, having watched him in in pre season, you know, I, I'm not sure he, he was ever that really. But you know, every transfer, I suppose, has to has to be justified. And and perhaps perhaps when the you know, I, I'm sure he was brought the club in good faith. Um, but yeah, it it's one of those that that just hasn't worked out. But you know, you could argue <laughs> in real terms that it's been a success because he was he was brought the club for a for a fee and he's been sold for for a bigger fee. So. In terms of that side of the things, you could you could argue that that Sunderland have have come out with a with a win there. Mm. Yeah, as you say, not every transfer is going to work out. And if you look at the signings that Sunderland have made, a lot of them have worked out very well. But not all of them are going to work out. I think that's just natural. It's going to happen at, at any club. But just to kind of round off 
the podcast. Sunderland, as we said, do play against Crew on Tuesday night. So, kind of, what are you looking forward to seeing? A few new signings will be involved. I expect Triantis, Dak, Bishop will probably start in goal. Probably Dak's the one that a lot of Sunderland fans are kind of excited to see and see what he's all about. Probably playing in that number ten position. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I think Mulberry mentioned after the Mallorca game that that the crew was going to be the game for Dak. Um, so hopefully, unless he's picked up a, an injury that we're unaware of, he'll play. Expect to see Jervis and Bennett probably up front. Um, which, as you mentioned, you know, it's a tough sell and a tough role for him. I know he scored against Hartlepool, but it's not his position. He's better off the wing, and mm. I, th- I think you know it would be nice to see him playing his actual position at some point. You'd expect Linton Gooch to play. Abdullah Bar will probably play. Interestingly, Chris Rigg is probably going to start. So that'll be his first sort of senior start in a Sunderland shirt, yeah. I'd imagine. Um, Niall Huggins probably going to play as well. Um, as you say, Nathan Bishop debut. Give Anthony Patterson a rest. It's It'll be an interesting game, actually, because will the side be that different of the one that lost 5-2 against Hartlepool? Probably not, because Tony Mowbray doesn't have that many that many more yeah. options, really, does he? Um, so you'll probably see Bishop and Dak uh, come in. So who started that game against Hartlepool? It was Young, wasn't it? And then Patterson Young came on. So, yeah. so you'll have Bishop coming in, and then obviously Lahaji's not here anymore, so it'll be Dak. So that would be my predicted predicted eleven, and then you know a few of those players will will have points to prove after that Hartlepool debacle. Really, I know it was pre season, but you know to lose five two to a national league league side was poor. Interesting, Joe, what the formation will be because they started that Hartlepool game with a with a, a back three or a back five, however you want to want to call it, with Zach Johnson in there. Yeah. Um, you know that that's a that's another interesting caveat to to the game. Uh, against Crew, which is a, a very quick turnaround playing Sunday, Tuesday. Is, uh, it's a bit of a nightmare, that. Mm, well, that's why I kind of think it's kind of seems likely they'll make 11 changes. I don't think you'd want to risk a, mm. a player that's played against Ipswich on Sunday evening and then play them again on, on Tuesday night against Crew with potentially them picking up a, an injury. But yeah, the formation will be an interesting one. I tend to think he'd probably try and stick with a 4 2 3 1. He went, as you said, with a back three against Hartlepool to try and fit. Zach Johnson in because that was his natural position as a centre back and it they say it didn't really work. But I think the problem there is the the midfield options because as I said, if you take out Neil and Equa, who's yeah. then going to play in midfield, potentially Rig, potentially Pritchard drops back. But again, you're kind of moving players out of position. So that's why it's a kind of Matete's injury now is looking like quite a bit of a blow because you're kind of lacking that depth in in central midfield. But we'll we'll see what he goes with on Tuesday and then Sunderland are away at Preston. Uh, next weekend on Saturday, the first championship away game of the season. So you can find um, or kind of build up to Tuesday's game against Crew over on the SAFC section of the Sunderland Echo website. And then we'll have a reaction from that game and then build up to the Preston game next weekend. So you can find all the latest Sunderland news over on the website. So once again, thanks a lot for joining us on the latest episode of the Raw podcast. And we'll see you next time.